First of all, I'll explain who I am and uh, what we're going to do. Okay, I'm Dennis Sansom. I'm familiar with some of you, and I'm very familiar with my wife and son. Uh, <laughs> uh, and she's here with uh, Jonathan, our son, for Mother's Day. All right. <laughs> well, and I also wish you all a great Mother's Day. But uh, I, I forget, maybe back in January, February, Gil and I were talking about maybe doing a brief series on the Holy Spirit. It would have been good if we could have timed this on Pentecost Sunday, which is what, three or four Sundays away, but it just didn't work out that way. And so I'm going to do two sessions here on the Holy Spirit. And I'll do a little introduction to how I'm going to approach this, but today we'll primarily be looking at the various scriptures, not all of them, but what I would consider to be the most important scriptures on the Holy Spirit. And then next Sunday, we'll talk about uh, some of the theologies that have been given about the Holy Spirit. But before we start, let's pray. We pray in thy spirit, O Lord, that thy presence be known to us to convict our hearts and to enlighten our minds, to be more obedient to thee, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I'm comforted uh, that ignorance is a legitimate approach to the study of the Holy Spirit because... Some, if you remember, disciples come to Jesus and ask about the Holy Spirit. And he says, well, you know, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. It comes and goes where it, uh, where it chooses. And so it may leave me here this morning and all of us will be, I mean, uh, go home a little more ignorant about the Holy Spirit. Yet, there is much to be said about the Holy Spirit. It is of, of the triune part of God, the neglected aspect. And, and, and I'm going to argue there's a good reason why we don't know the Holy Spirit in the same way that we all know God the Father and God the Son. You're familiar with the Apostles' Creed and also the Nicene Creed. If you were in the 9 o'clock service, did you say the Nicene Creed in, in, in the Eucharist? Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, it's traditional to say the Nicene Creed in the Eucharist, and the Apostles' Creed is the, the accepted creed for the morning and the evening prayers. But if you remember the Apostle Creed, when it talks about the Holy Spirit, it just says, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And in the original version, that is, at the Council of Nicaea in 325, that's also all that it said about the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Well, it wasn't long after the Council of Nicaea that a movement started up in Macedonia. And they were called, and I've got that big name there, the Numata Machians, Numata Machians, and you can translate that in a number of ways. Numata is the Greek word for spirit. Machians, are, we have this English word called machinations, that is to, to manipulate, to oppose something. Well, these were people who opposed the Holy Spirit. They opposed the Holy Spirit. They were claiming that the Holy Spirit was not divine and that should not be worshipped at all. And they were basing a lot of what they said upon the reticence of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. That just to say, I believe in the Holy Spirit would be enough. But to say that we're Trinitarian, that is, for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was not necessary. We did not need to claim that the Holy Spirit was divine. And so they started this movement. And it was uh, opposed by most people because they felt like it wasn't consistent with what the Scriptures did say about the work of the Holy Spirit. That the work of the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures is not likened unto an angel. It's not like an unto a, just ordinary creature. It's not like my spirit either, 
We all have spirits, but the Holy Spirit is not like my spirit. There's something unique as the scriptures talk about the spirit. And so these people were wrong. And at the Council of Constantinople in the year 381, there were several issues that they dealt with. One was what was called Apollinarianism that said that Jesus wasn't fully human. His mind was divine, but not human. They opposed that, but they also opposed these people. And what we know about the Nicene Creed is really the Council of Constantinople's addendum to the Nicene Creed. And you can see that's the full rendition of what we say whenever we say the Nicene Creed. As we believe in the Holy Spirit, that remember that's all the original Nicene Creed said, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father... And I have there in parentheses, there's a lot of history behind this, and the Son, the Western Church, mainly under the influence of the Roman Catholic Pope, the, the Pope of Rome, added that phrase, it's called the filioque clause, from the Spirit. If you were ever to go to a Greek Orthodox Church, and they said the Nicene Creed, they don't put that in there. And there's a long historical reason for that, and I, I understand that, but be that as it may. Who with the Father and the Son is worshipped, and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. So, the Holy Spirit here should be worshipped because the Holy Spirit has proceeded from the Father as the Son has also proceeded from the Father. That they are inseparable from one another. That our notion of who the Holy Spirit is is wrapped up with the church's claim that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, we cannot pull the Holy Spirit out of what we think about God. Our notion about God is wrapped up very much so in the activity of the Holy Spirit. Well, there are questions that, even after a, a thorough study of Scripture, that will always come up. And when we come back next Sunday and we look at various theologians, they'll see, uh, their, uh, we'll look at their attempts on how they responded to these questions. The first one is, how is the Spirit divine in the same way that the Father and the Son? Are they divine in the same way? We may know Jesus' Jesus's deity from, let's say, the Incarnation, from the Resurrection, from the ascension, we know the Father's deity because the Father is the creator, the mystery of the world. But how do we know that the Holy Spirit is divine? Secondly, what is the relationship then between the Father, Son, and Spirit? Is the Spirit just the Spirit of Jesus? Is there something unique about the Holy Spirit? What is the relationship? Now, this really gets very, very complicated, but it's very much at the heart of what we call the mystery of God. That God is triune. That God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But as one God, one God, three persons, becomes the orthodox statement of the doctrine of the Trinity. And thirdly, what is what, what sense does it make to call the Holy Spirit a person? Now, it's easy to say that about Jesus. We know Jesus walked, he talked, he felt, he lived. He's a person. We know the Father because the Father relates to God the Son. As a father, there's a personal center. There's an intentionality. There's a seed of emotions wrapped up with the father. But in what way can we call the spirit, who's not in any way likened unto a father or a son, a person? And this has always been one of the big challenges in understanding the Holy Spirit. Well, first of all, I think in some ways this is often a neglected aspect in our understanding of the spirit. And that is in the second verse of the book, of the Bible itself. It says here that the divine Ruah, that's, that's how the Hebrew would pronounce it, R-U-A-H, it's also translated as breath, hovered over the deep. That at the beginning, God hovered over the deep as spirit. And from that hovering over the deep, creation emerges. 
that God's very creative power to bring something out of nothing to form the world into a meaningful whole in which not only can we relate in a good creation, but God can also relate uh, is an act of God's spirit, the Ruach. Now, I, I search around for visual aids, uh, for paintings that I think are quite indicative or suggestive of what we're trying to describe here. And I found this one. Uh, I'm, uh, Colleen Shea, I don't know much about her, but I like that painting. Of course, it uses the traditional symbol of the dove. Now, the Genesis count doesn't say that there's a dove, but it's hovering much like what you could think of a bird hovering. Now, we get the concept of the spirit, at least the symbol, symbolic association of the spirit and the dove from Jesus' baptism. And frankly, if you do much research about the paintings of Jesus, the dove is the on a whole, the, the sort of universal symbol for the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. But you see there in this painting, there's, there's sort of formlessness there. There's just this sort of churning of water, or as the Hebrew Bible said, without form and void. Well, God the Spirit hovers over it. And from that hovering, creation emerges out of God's hovering over it. It's not, the, the, the idea, and this is one thing I like about it, I probably could go on way too long about this notion of the hovering spirit upon the deep. It's not that God uses hands, so to speak. God, God picks up building blocks or, you know, two by fours or cement and makes creation out of this. But God creates the world out of God's presence. The world comes from God's hovering presence. And that dynamic reality of God is what gives birth. In a sense, think of it like this, that creation results from God's hovering presence. Not that God manufactures, fabricates things to make the world, but the world is an expression of God's presence here. But the Holy Spirit is also represented as the agency of redemption. I like this parallel. As you know, that verse here is the annunciation given to Mary there at Nazareth. It is said that the holy pneuma, which is the Greek word for spirit, which can also be translated like air or wind or breath. Ruah is the Hebrew word. Pneuma is the Greek word. Both suggesting breath or air. That the pneuma will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And Mary then gives birth to Christ. Now, we call that the virgin birth, and I don't have any problem with that. But oftentimes we get sort of tripped up over this idea, now how did the Holy Spirit move within Mary to make something happen? Move this over there and move that over here, and then all of a sudden we have conception. How could the Holy Spirit do that? How could it not be a sex act and there be a birth of a human being? Well, I, I think that's a wrong-headed view in understanding the birth of Christ. Just as the Ruah hovered over and creation results. Here, the pneuma, the breath of God, hovers over Mary. And Christ is a result of that. God creates here in the same way as God created the whole world by the Ruah hovering over. Here, God creates the Son by overshadowing Mary. It's the same creative act. Same act. And hence, there's a strong parallel in understanding Christ and the purpose of creation. And understanding why there's a creation and why we have Christ as our Redeemer. This is one of the famous paintings. Uh, hold on one second. I went a little too far. This is it. Rubens' Annunciation. Of course, it's that real luster, that sort of uh, deep, rich qualities of, of, that, petir of that 
particular period, the 16th century. But notice that there are angels there, and they're conveying the message. But there's the Spirit again, the Holy Spirit and the symbol of the dove, shining upon Mary here. The light is coming upon her, it illuminates her, and through that act of illumination, not necessarily through physical manipulation, but through that act of spiritual illumination then, Christ is going to be born. I think that's a very powerful picture of it. Of course, you know, is it is it literal in that sense? No, it's not literal in that sense. How do we understand the hovering, the overshadowing of the Spirit? We understand that is the activity of the Spirit. Here, what he's trying to capture, I think, is the spiritual essence of what does it mean to have all these heavenly realities, these angels and the Spirit here coming upon Mary to give birth. Okay. And then the Holy Spirit descended at his baptism upon him in bodily form like a dove. I forgot the space there. We find this secondly in Christ there at baptism. First in his birth. And then the Spirit comes upon Jesus at baptism. He goes to the river Jordan. And there is John the Baptist who has already been baptizing. He walks in and says it is fitting for righteousness sake. John the Baptist here as he baptizes him. Here's the voice from heaven. This is my son. But there's also the Spirit, like a dove, it says. It's a simile, like a dove. Lights upon Jesus. Something unique is happening here. And that uniqueness is the act of redemption. Now, I found this painting. I've seen it before. It's not real clear. I apologize for that. But there are a couple of significant things about this painting. It's another 16th century uh, sort of beginning Renaissance painting, full of lustrous colors, rich and sort of human sort of sensuality to it. But you see the Spirit there coming upon Jesus at baptism over the far left. But there's something else significant. The Spirit comes upon Jesus at baptism. Do any of you remember what the Spirit does to Jesus after baptism? Sorry? Lights upon Him. Sorry? That's right. And what happens in the wilderness? He's confronted by Satan and resists the temptations of Satan. And frankly, I don't know if I could have resisted any of them. To change stones into bread would have been a great thing to do. But Jesus resisted this. This was Jesus' first act of ministry after the spiritual anointing of baptism. In other words, the Spirit is at the very heart, at the very essence of Jesus' redemptive activity. There at birth, there at baptism, and there when it all starts in, 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 in resisting the temptations of evil. It says this in Timothy, and I think this is a neglected part, but uh, I think this is very consistent with what we've already seen with the work of the Spirit and the Son. It says there, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, that He was revealed in flesh, referring to the Son, Jesus, vindicated in the Spirit. Vindicated in the Spirit. It's not a reference to baptism. What this is a reference to is the raising of Jesus from the dead. That the Holy Spirit, who was with Jesus in birth, in baptism, in ministry, time and time again, with Christ and whatever he does, is also with Christ in, in the grave. And it was through the work of the Spirit that Jesus is raised from the dead. Think with me for a second. As the Spirit hovered over the deep, and creation results from this. As the Spirit overshadows Mary and Jesus is born, Jesus dies in the cross, and the same Spirit, the same creative, redemptive agency, act, power of God, is at work. And raises Jesus from the dead. I'm going to give you a couple of very powerful paintings about this one. Tintoretto's painting. That here is Jesus dying and the angels are lowering him from the cross. But And there's the Father 
who, of course, this is visual. These are analogies. We're seeing through these paintings, I think, into a deeper meaning. But they're incredibly, I think, expressive of the relationship. But in between the Father and the Son, there's the Spirit. The Spirit is, in a sense, the go-between God. I read a book once with that title by a guy named Taylor. The go-between God. Here, the go-between God, God the, the Spirit, is vindicating Jesus, raising Jesus from the dead. And here's another powerful painting. A little more expressive of the agony and the emaciation that Jesus went through in the cross. But he is being once again lowered from. We see the little cherubs, the angels there. And there is God the Father. Sort of stoical almost. Uh, I, frankly, I like the painting of the prior. Uh, I mean, the, the image of the Father and the prior. That is, it must have been grievous for the Father. There was profound grief within the divine reality at the Son. Not only were they experiencing loss of life, experiencing the sins of the world, the anguish of all sinners, the alienation of a broken and harmed world. But there's the go-between God again. There's the Spirit. The Spirit is still at work even in the death of Christ. And was Christ is raised from the dead, it's by the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is essential for us to understand that God is Spirit, not only Father and Son, but God is Spirit. In a way, we could argue that is trying to stay consistent with this notion that if God were not Spirit then Jesus would have remained dead in the grave. That Jesus would have been a great teacher, a great prophet, a great example for us. But Jesus would not have been the risen Savior who now is at the right hand of God the Father. This is the work of the being of God as Spirit. Then, of course, there's the wonderful, powerful story of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, the great feast of the first fruits in the Jewish festivals in which the, um, the, 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 the disciples have been afraid now for 50 days, not knowing what to do. Uh, in fact, filled with uncertainties and doubts and fears. They, in a sense, are in hiding. There they are in the upper room in Jerusalem, and something happens to them. A sound like rushing wind, fire, comes upon each one of them, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church and her mission is Pentecost. In a sense, though, we do worship and, and praise God for what happened at Calgary and then what happens with the empty tomb at Easter. But as a movement, as a body, as a group of people who have been changed, our birthday is Pentecost. This is when the church starts. This is when her mission becomes her very identity. And that's why Pentecost should be just as much celebrated for us as Christmas is and as Easter because it's still the work of the triune God doing it. As you know, um, uh, they are all there, and many, many people from different language groups are in Jerusalem to celebrate the mandated Pentecost, first fruits harvest. And as they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they begin to speak of the glory of God, and they speak in all the known languages there. It's quite remarkable. I, at the moment, I forget how many there were. I wanted to say maybe I counted nine or something like that at one time. And all these people from around the world of that area there, that is, who were in Jerusalem, heard that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, the Savior of the world, in their own language. And that was because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I know I may be stressing this a little bit, but I do think this is an important point to see the sort of the, the, uh, the, the, the nature of the work of the Holy Spirit as Ruah hovers over the deep in creation, as Numa overshadows Mary in the birth of Christ. Here, 
falls upon, just as hovered over, overshadowed, falls upon the disciples, and something new happens. Something that had not had happened before. A brand new thing enters human history, and that's the birth of the body of Christ. Of course, it's consistent with what God had done previously, fulfills what God had done with Israel, but now the mission of the church begins because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Same activity, creative, redemptive act of God here, creates these new events. I found this, uh, I, I like this. I, I searched around for a number of paintings on Pentecost, and I like this one, frankly, the best. I, I couldn't find who painted it. I really don't know. Uh, but, but notice that there's movement in this painting, left to right, coming down from light there into them. There's a transparency about this. The people become transparent because the work of the Holy Spirit through them. When you see a Christian, you see the presence of the Holy Spirit. When the church does what the church is supposed to do, it's being filled by the reality of God. As this moves from left to right, these sort of sort of fireballs here moving into the people and they are caught up into the flow of the Holy Spirit. In a sense, the church exists as she is, warts and all, in the Holy Spirit. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. We are living in the Holy Spirit. And Pentecost here is the act, the moment in time in which this began. We're part of, it, to use a scientific uh, or physicist parallel, we're part of a big bang. Part of a big bang. The Holy Spirit at Pentecost blew big, so to speak. Burst out into history. And it's been moving out ever since, just like that big bang concept in physics tells us. And we are a part of that great movement here. The church doesn't exist by her own craft and skills and plans and goals, even though oftentimes we end up doing that and we usually end up harming our mission in doing that. The church is not just another social institution that should be patterned after a country club or a government agency or some civic organization. Th those have their own agenda, but the church has a different agenda. It's translucent, transparent, like this, these images are here, of a reality that has given birth to it, that we get caught up in, and that is the mission of the proclamation of Christ. Also, we find in Scripture uh, that the Spirit is the source, the foundation, the cause for the words of the prophet, but also for the church's witness as well. And I want to look at three passages here in the Old Testament in which this is talked about. In Joel chapter 2, it mentions that there will come a time, kind of a messianic vision here, that the prophet Joel sees there will be a time in which the Holy Spirit will be within real communities, real people's lives. And it is then in which the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. That is to proclaim. Not just to make sort of you know, futuristic predictions. That, that's something else. When we think of prophecy, what we're thinking of is the proclamation of God's events. Now, of course, that entails the future. Of course, that entails when Christ will return. But what it's about is not about what we see, but what we already know. What we already have been received. What we already have been convicted and convicted by in, in, in God's revelation in Christ. That the Spirit then will be there in all sources of that proclamation. When we truly proclaim that Christ is Lord, that Christ is the redemption of the world, that the new heaven and new earth will be a result of God's eternal, indomitable mercies and forgiveness, uh, we are acting in the Holy Spirit. This is Joel's prophecy. 
And this should be what the church ought to be doing. In a sense, we ought to be fulfilling what the prophet Joel predicted. Then in Micah 3.8, I am filled with power, with the Ruah of the Lord, the great 8th century prophet Micah here, knows that what he is saying doesn't come just from himself. It comes from this same hovering force, the same creative act, and that's the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit. That the prophets are not really judged by their intellect. They're not judged by their creativity. Those wonderful, insightful, powerful, courageous prophets from Amos to Jeremiah to Isaiah, on and on here, uh, we don't respect and appreciate them because they were just kind of like Shakespeare's back in the 8th century B.C., great writers or great social courageous people. No, we, we, we study them. We, we, we pay attention to what they said. We, we ponder on their message because this comes from the Spirit. This is the Spirit speaking to us. Their words are as binding upon us today as they were in the 8th century and the 6th century and the 4th centuries B.C. Why? It's because it's the same Spirit speaking to us. Now, if Isaiah was just a creative genius, and he was, in my humble opinion, maybe outside of Shakespeare, there was no greater language, no greater writer of language than the prophets of Isaiah, both the 8th century and the 6th century. Uh, so there, he's worth studying in that sense. But if he were just an 8th century prophet or a 6th century prophet, then we could study him as a representative of antiquity, of a bygone era, and be impressed and maybe even amazed by what he did. But he wouldn't be a prophet. He's a prophet because he is as relevant today as he was then because that same spirit that gave word to him is the same spirit that gives words to us. The spirit is hovering over us then through the prophets here, through the words of these great people. Hosea, you know, probably the sad... well. Jeremiah was the saddest of all the prophets, but Hosea, as you know, had a special burden to bear. He was commanded to um, to, to marry Gomer, who was a prostitute, uh, and, and in that marriage he was a symbol of God's marriage to Israel, who was a prostitute. But uh, Hosea comes to the conviction that he is a man of the Spirit, Ruah. That his very life now is in the embodiment of the presence of the creative act of God. That he couldn't separate his identity here from the work of the Holy Spirit. That at the heart of the prophets, just like the Chalcedonian, excuse me, the Constantinopian creed added to the Nicene Creed, spake through the prophets. This is part of our claim. When we say we believe in the Holy Spirit, what we believe also entails that that which generated these magnificent people, these great prophets here, was the work of that which also created the world, the Holy Spirit. Now we also know, as in Scripture, that the Holy Spirit is is the heart, the cause, the foundation, the source of the church's witness, the church's message. In John chapter 14, probably the Gospel of John has more to say about the message of the Holy Spirit in Jesus than any of the other Gospels. We read here, But the Advocate, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Now, the word advocate here is paraclete in Greek. The word advocate is pretty good, like a lawyer is your advocate. We probably have some lawyers in here. Somebody hires you, they've been sued or they're in some... Uh, uh, they're in jail or whatever, they need someone to come beside them and defend them. 
The word paraclete really means the one who stands beside, kind of like an advocate would. Well, the church does not exist by our own intellect. The words that we give are not based just upon our own creative speculations or our own kind of philosophical wisdom. Even though all those things are good and right and we should learn from those things. But the words, what we proclaim, the heart of our message comes from the one who stands beside us. Stand, comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then brings to memory, brings to conviction what the church ought to say. Will recall to her people what Christ has done and said. That that which we proclaim, just like in, in, in the worship service this morning, in the act of the communion, in the great hymns that we sing, in a sense, in that they are of Christ, it's the Holy Spirit who worked in those writers, those liturgists, and works today when we say these things. That we are actually in the presence of the Holy Spirit when we proclaim these things in worship and in devotion and meditation. But this is the paraclete who stands beside us, giving us the memory. Now, uh, I'm going to just chase this just for a little bit more. Uh, of course, not everything we say as Christians, not everything that the church talks about and how it talks about it, could we say is really, quote, spiritual. It may be interesting, may be timely. Hopefully they're all clear and conscientious and sincerely held. But when do we know what we say is truly spiritual? In this light, here in the Gospel of John, it's when it's a remembrance of Christ. When we proclaim not only the Lordship of Christ, but apply that. When we say it, live it in ways that are consistent with the revelation of God the Spirit, we then can rightly say that we are in the Spirit. Just like at Pentecost, the Spirit came upon them, filled them, when we rightly proclaim the presence, the love, the mercies, the forgiveness, the truth, the judgment of Christ, we are also in the Spirit in doing so. The authority, even though we're all responsible to be you know, intelligent, to be clear, to be well-studied, to be learned about this, but the authority comes from the very being of God, His Holy Spirit. Then in John 20, 22-23, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now this is after the resurrection. He is with the disciples. He has, he's there, hold on, I think it's near Tiberias, I think, which is on the Sea of Galilee. And he breathed on them. This is called the encephalation, right? Is there a, 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 a rite, a liturgical uh, event or whatever in the Episcopal liturgy of the encephalation? Any of you ever been to an encephalation service? Well, I, I wish there were something like this. Now, the Orthodox do it. The Greek Orthodox do it. I, I went to a uh, I was on a retreat once, and there was an Orthodox priest there who was a bishop. And part of the worship service at that time is that he he breathed on us. He breathed on us. Of course, it was symbolic, and it wasn't close. Uh, but he breathed on us. Uh, here, D Jesus is breathing. Once again, it's the Ruah, the Spirit, as the breath of God hovered over in creation results. It's the Numa as the breath of God overshadowed Mary. 
and she gave birth to Jesus. Here, that same breath comes upon us. The very intimacy. You know, if you're not going to breathe, you're going to die. If you have no breath, you're a corpse. You're alive. Your breath, even though it's, it's air, but it symbolizes your, your livingness, your animation, your soul, so to speak. And that you have a living soul, you're breathing, and your breath comes from your living center. The very essence of what it means to be who you are as a living being. Well, here, here Jesus gives us that living soul, that breath, that intimacy, that life, that dynamic of, of God's presence. And to have Christ in this way, we have the breath of God. Here it is, in a sense, proceeds. The Holy Spirit is that breath that proceeds from the Son in this regard. But notice, though, what, what's the effect of this? What's the consequence of receiving the breath, the pneuma, the ruah of Christ? If you forgive sins, they are forgiven. If you don't, they are not. Now, that's, that's a real burden to bear. How do I know I'm being spiritual? How do I know I have the presence of the Spirit in my life? How do I know that the breath of Christ has become my breath. If I don't forgive you, if I hold revenge and vengeance, if I harbor hatred and retaliation, do I have the breath of God? I think what this is, in many other places, you know, in the model prayer that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount, right after he concludes the giving of the Lord's Prayer, he talks about you should forgive, because if you don't forgive, you're not forgiven. In a way, a sign, perhaps, we'll look at some more here in just a minute. I'm going to pick up the face. But one of the most telltale indicators of being in the Spirit is forgiveness. Because it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to really bury the hatchet, so to speak. Absorb the wrong. To be reconciled to the offender. To forgive. It's a spiritual act. In a sense, to keep my metaphor going here, see that the next time, the next time you're, you're forced, forced with that choice, should I hate, retaliate, revenge, or should I be patient and long-suffering and forgive? The Spirit is hovering over you, wanting to create, wanting to bring out the newness of life, to receive the very breath of Christ. Genesis, then, separate and distinct from Pentecost, or is there a different version of I would say different event, but same spirit. Just like creation was a different event, same spirit. We see one, one thing acting in many different ways. In a sense, we get a glimpse into the personhood of the Holy Spirit by seeing what the Spirit has done. Just like you could measure me and you know, take a photo of me, but you don't really know me until you see me speak and act and behave in certain ways. We're not speculating here about who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit has been acting. It's our responsibility to interpret, to understand who is then the person of the Holy Spirit. But you know, the encephalation came before the Pentecost. Right, that's right. So they didn't get it. Right, I mean, they didn't. They, I mean, they didn't. Jesus breathed on them, but they didn't understand. You're right. If they were still puzzled at Pentecost. Uh, I don't know what we can I make mean, out of all that. You made that. You made that point when you said they were... Yeah, that's right. They were uncertain, even though they had the breath of Christ. They had the presence of the Ruah of Makes Christ it here. To when we well, you're right. But you know, also, we don't, we don't have an excuse. 
Yeah, because we're post-Pentecostal. They were at least pre-Pentecostal. Uh, yeah, yeah. Here's what here's what we can't say. Now, here's what we can say. Let me. I'm frail. I'm weak. Just like that publican, that's tax collector in that great parable. We smite our breast in the corner of the temple, and but we go home justified in our humility, uh, in our in our confession of our own weakness. We can admit that we can't live up to the gift that has been given to us. But here's what we can't say. I didn't know I was supposed to do that. None of us can use that as a legitimate excuse. That is, I didn't know I was supposed to forgive. All right, let let me pick up the pace here. The church's work of redemption. You've studied some of these, I suspect. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, there's that great list of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That each of these gifts, as Paul says, are to build up the church, to edify, and that's the word construct. And he mentions those great gifts from prophecy to helps to administration, even to healings and to speaking in tongues. All those are outpouring of the Holy Spirit for a particular function, never for self-edification. You know, look how bright, how good of a preacher I am. Or look how dynamic I am, I can speak in tongues. Look how special I am because I can bring healing to people's lives. Never for self-edification. It is to edify the body of Christ. So whatever goes on to continue the work of, of the church, of the body of Christ, is the work of the Spirit, giving gifts to people to do certain things. Then in Galatians 5, there's that wonderful list of the fruits of the Spirit. Now, I'm not wanting to make a lot of distinction here, but I think there's a little bit of one. The gifts are to edify the church. The fruits are to edify your personal relationships. I don't think I can make that distinction absolute, but I think there's an emphasis here. The fruits of the Spirit, any of you ever memorized what those are? Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, tenderness, kindness. These are necessary to live the spiritual life interpersonally with one another. So instead of being, like I said, being hateful, you're, you're, you're giving patience. Instead of being vindictive, you're giving long-suffering. Instead of you know, always being critical and, and condemning, condemning towards others, there, there's joy, there's peace, there's love, all these things. Those choices that we make are really stimulated into us because of the presence of the Spirit. Those are the fruits of the Spirit within us. And of course, they're contrasted with what Paul calls the fruits of the flesh. Then quickly, Romans 8. Uh, in my opinion, the most descriptive explanation of what prayer is, even though, as you know, it's from beginning to end in all the scriptures, is in Romans chapter 8. Paul talks about here that we don't even know how to pray. We don't. I mean, how can I successfully communicate to you? I'm struggling here with every word I say. I'm not for sure if I'm being successful or not. How do we then pray to a God? The mystery of all things, the power of all creation. How do we do that? We don't even know what to say. But it's the Holy Spirit that comes within us. And as he says there, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In a way, when we pray, whether that's in our private devotions or in our shared liturgies, in our petitions or in our cry of help, however we approach God in prayer, it's really the Holy Spirit who prays through us. And then right after that, Paul says, and the Son also intercedes on our part. When we pray, the Son intercedes for us. When we pray, the Spirit intercedes for us. So who is doing the real praying here? To split a fine hair here, we don't really pray to God. We pray in God through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into our spirit 
interprets what we really need, applies it to what the will of God is, and intercedes through the Son to God the Father. We get caught up into the inner triune activity of God. One way we know God is triune is because of our experience of prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We get caught up in the intercessory work of, of God. Then in 1 Corinthians 12, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit. We are brought to Christ through the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts us. It is the Holy Spirit who works to our own acknowledgement of who Christ is and our own sense of being a disciple of Christ. It is the work of the presence of God that does that. How then did I become a Christian? In some ways, I, I know what I did. I know what I do. I'm constantly growing, sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing in that. You know, sometimes you know, feeling at great peace, at other times feeling the need for great confession. But, but in, in a sense, it's not that, look at it like this, it's not that I have to find my way to God. God finds God's way to us. Because no one says Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit, through the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is relentlessly pursuing us working within the deepest resources of our memories, our emotions, our own sense of self, drawing us in uh, to the reality of God in Christ. This also ought to be seen. I'm, I'm just, I've got about two or three minutes here, then I need to stop. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the creative power of the universe. The redemptive power of Christ but we can grieve the Holy Spirit there in Isaiah 63, in Ephesians 4, and 1 Thessalonians 5. We're not to quench the Holy Spirit. We're not to insult, grieve, hurt the Holy Spirit. Like you can grieve your mate or your children or they can grieve you. You can grieve your friend. Not just having personality differences or accidents, but you can really hurt somebody for, for your actions. Well, you know, God is so invested in us that God has given of God's very breath, God's very center, the very essence of who God is. And in our callousness, our insensitivity, in our, our uh, insolence towards God and towards the world, this hurts God's heart. That part of God that is hurt because of what we have done is the Holy Spirit. In a sense, this is the emotion of grief. And then finally, I just I'm, these are special features. We could talk more about them. Uh, it's hard to kind of systematize all of this. But, uh, you know, there's that very troublesome passage. Not much is said about it. And frankly, in my opinion, I don't think we need to say a whole lot about it. But it is there. And that is what's called the blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. All sins can be forgiven, but not the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. How do we interpret that? Uh, is it like committing some sort of a ritual taboo? Once you've broken the taboo, there's no way of ever correcting it. You know, if ever you, whatever that is, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, you're damned forever. I don't think that's it. For one thing, that would separate the Spirit from the work of the Son. We know we have been brought in to the presence of God. Nothing can separate, not even my own failures, separate us from the love of God. What, what can the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit mean? Well, this is an attempt. I admit it's, it, it, it's not going to answer all questions. Just as no one can say that Jesus Christ is Lord except through the Holy Spirit. If I, work the, if I resist, just like that heretical group up in Macedonia, the, the Numa Namakians did, said that the Holy Spirit is not real, 
that there's no way God can communicate intimately with us. God is purely speculation. We make God on our own terms because God doesn't reveal the very essence of God as spirit to us. Then I think, yeah, the natural consequence of that would be separation from God. That's how I interpret that passage. I don't think it has anything to do with taboos. And then it mentions just in passing in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed. Um, this is a reference, uh, frankly, to the Old Testament, uh, not a reference to the New. One could theologically incorporate the New in that as well. Here, Scripture is a result of the breath of God, just as the breath of God hovered over the deep in the prophets, in, in Christ, in the church, also in the Scripture. It is all brought together by the creative work of God. So when we read the Scriptures, we, we look through the Scriptures, through the Word that is given to us by the, by the Holy Spirit. This is what traditionally we have called the doctrine of inspiration. That is, these words are the means by which the Holy Spirit speaks to us. John Calvin, and I'll conclude with this, John Calvin had an interesting kind of analogy to understanding this. That to be instructed by God means you go to a classroom and uh, there's, in that, there's content in that classroom. And the content in the classroom is Jesus. But you have to have a teacher to rightly understand that content and that teacher is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the teacher of what we know about who, who God is in Christ. Anyone want to make a comment or an observation? Anything you want to add to this? I've gone a little long. Yeah. I'm hearing a lot when you say ruach, spirit, wind, breath. The quantitative position here in Birmingham, some of you may remember, God at the speed of light, he talks about how God is energy. Light. And in him is no darkness. I sat down with that man and I said, Growing up on the farm, we say it's dark as pitch. Or you can't see your hand in front of your face. And he looked at me and he said, It's not dark at all. Hmm. He said, There are 300,000 filaments of light per square inch in this universe. He says, The reason you can't see is because of the limitation of the human eye. So God is light. Hmm. Of my wife has always uh, said that, that he's, he's energy. That's why he's here. Hmm. That's why he's everywhere. And it's that energy, big bang, it's that energy, spirit. That's my comment. <laughs> but the book is entitled, God at the Speed of Light. Well, next uh, Sunday I'll look at various theologians on how they try to incorporate all this scripture and make sense out of all of this even more so. Well, go in peace, and I'll Thank see you. you next week. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Thanks.